This evening I'd like to speak about compassion. Mother Teresa once said that we are not asked to do great things in our lives, but that we are asked to do small things with great love. And this simple and profound statement for me is so much a reminder of the heart of this journey. One lesson we are asked to learn again and again here in our practice is the lesson about the power of compassion and the power of love. The Buddha was once asked by Ananda, one of his foremost disciples, would it be true to say that a part of our practice is for for developing loving kindness and compassion? And the Buddha answered, no, it wouldn't be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of love and compassion. In so many ways, meditation is so extraordinarily simple. This path is so extraordinarily simple. In so many ways, it's possible for us to make this path so incredibly complicated. You may have noticed today, or in the days you've been here already, how we can forget just a simple instruction, just be awake. Because we have too many other things to do, it seems before we can be awake. We can make meditation into something so intricate. Sometimes our practice is complicated by the agendas that we bring here. Now, some of you may have come with particular agendas, you know, of wanting certain solutions, certain insights, certain answers, certain openings. If you didn't come with an agenda, you probably have one by now. (laughs) Oh, I've got this to get rid of. I've got something to get rid of. I've got to get rid of my aversion. I've got to get rid of my negativity. I've got to get rid of my greed. Oh, I have things to get. You know, I've got to get some of that peace they're talking about. I've I've got to get some of that happiness. It's bound to be here somewhere, and I just need to work a little bit more. Sometimes we can make meditation very complicated through, through our evaluations, our excessive concerns about how we're doing. You know, last walking, my mindfulness was like this, and this walking, it was a little worse, and that means next walking, it has to be a little bit better, or this sitting, I got four breaths in a row. Oh, but the next one, maybe I'll only get two. We can become so concerned with our evaluations, with looking for our signposts that our meditation is working. 
we can become very entangled very quickly in our ideas of progress and improvement, entangled in resolving issues. I mean, certainly we become much more aware of what's going on within ourselves when we sit and are still and how quickly we, we find ourselves inclining to those familiar thoughts about, you know, it's up to me, it's my responsibility to find an answer. And if I, maybe if I think more about it, you know, if I dwell on it more, if I obsess more about it, if I write it down, I'm going to find that resolution. In all of that complexity, it is easy to forget that the heart of this practice is dedicated simply to the end of suffering and to being awake. And so often, the bridge between suffering and sorrow and being awake is compassion. When we think of compassion or reflect upon compassion, sometimes we are tempted to think of compassion in terms of doing some great deed or making some grand sacrifice or engaging in, in some very dramatic gesture or renunciation. And of course, when we think of compassion in this rather idealized way, most of us probably think, well, I'd, I'd best leave this compassion to the saints and to the Buddhas. Or we might also think of compassion as a particular state, you know, where we, you know, float around in a kind of benevolent radiance and rousiness, you know, smiling upon the world. Or we might think of, about compassion as a destination that we're working towards and that we'll arrive at much later in our journey, after we've resolved our issues or after we've purified ourselves or made ourselves perfect. And there are a number of things we can say about compassion. One is, that you don't have to be perfect to be compassionate. You only actually need to be present and awake. Compassion doesn't actually require grand gestures or dramatic renunciations. It is sometimes in the most simple of words and gestures, the way that we touch our world, the way that we touch our own hearts that we find the deepest expressions of love and compassion. We don't need to have a long history of meditation and many wise credentials and many profound experiences in order to be compassionate. What we do need to learn is how to listen so well and so profoundly to this moment we certainly don't need a lot of prescriptions and formulas to live in a compassionate way. We live in a world that abounds with prescriptions and formulas. They do little to heal. 
what we do need to know this art of is how to attend to each moment so wholeheartedly in our lives that we are able to let go of our resistances. Compassion is not a mental state or a particular feeling even that we direct towards a specific instance of suffering or pain. I think compassion is something much more alive and much more vital than some kind of state we call forth at an appropriate moment. Compassion, in my understanding, is a relationship. It's a living and vital relationship. It is the way in which we are present the quality of our presence in our world, in our lives, and in ourselves. One of my favorite um, manifestations of, of Buddha mind is in the, the deity of the statue of Kuan Yin. And it's a Chinese deity. And translated, Kuan Yin means one who hearkens to the sounds of the universe. One who knows how to listen to the sounds of the universe. And for me, this so much addresses what the path of compassion is actually concerned with. Because the path of compassion is not even concerned with results. It's not concerned with fixing suffering or fixing pain. The path of compassion to me is, is not concerned with, you know, wading around in ourselves until we find the right words and the right actions that are going to make a particular impact. And certainly the path of compassion is not at all concerned with placing blame. For me, Compassion is concerned with learning how to listen. Learning how to listen is actually the mother of wisdom because this is where we learn. What do we discover when we learn how to listen well here and when we learn how to listen well in our lives? One thing we discover is about interconnectedness. Listening well reveals to us the transparency and the illusoriness of separation. It becomes clearer and clearer to us that all beings on relative and on ultimate levels are deeply interconnected. We depend upon each other for our well-being we depend upon each other for our survival. We depend upon each other for our nourishment. We walk in even to the dining room here and partake of a single meal and to reflect on the countless beings, the countless energy that has been put forth and woven together in order to serve us that single meal. We are connected together and interconnected, all beings, in our capacity to feel. All life has the capacity to know profound joy, 
and to know pain. All living beings have the capacity to know happiness and to know, fe and to know fear. There is no living being that is exempt from pain, from, exempt from sickness, from loss, from separation, from grief, from terror. So many of these experiences and feelings are the threads that run through all of life and through all of experience. There is no one who is exempt, and then no one who is exempt from the need for compassion. Because it is that simple quality of compassion, the presence of compassion that heals and restores us. It is the quality of compassion that offers to us a sanctuary from pain. We are all interconnected in other ways also. Perhaps we see the ways in which we are interconnected in the possibilities of living in delusion. How easily we assume the world of separation to be a world of truth. How easily we assume the truth of the separation between I and you, between self and other, between us and them, between inner and outer. And how often we don't see or don't see deeply enough that this very assumption of separation is actually the forerunner of suffering. Could there be anger without separation? Could there be violence and judgment without the belief in separation? Could there be greed and hatred and prejudice without believing in separation to be a truth? When we see ourselves as being separate from other selves, we experience ourselves as living in a world which we divide into opponents and allies friends and enemies. When we live or accept this assumption of separation to be true, we feel ourselves to be surrounded by potential threats, things and people who will harm us, and to be surrounded equally by other people, other circumstances in which we project safety. This is a world of struggle defending and pursuing, avoiding and grasping. This is actually the world of struggle. The most essential suffering of all is to live within the delusion of separation which exiles us from that which is most true within ourselves, from that which is true within all life. All beings are equally interconnected. All human beings are equally interconnected in their capacity to awaken, their capacity to understand what is true, to explore the possibilities of awareness. All beings are equally interconnected in our capacity for liberation, for enlightenment, our capacities to nurture forgiveness and compassion. 
would like to read you small, small offering. The entire visible universe is the Buddha, so are all sounds. Hold fast to one principle and all the others are identical. On seeing one thing, you see all things. On perceiving one mind, you perceive all mind. Glimpse one truth and all truth is present in your vision, for there is nowhere at all which is devoid of the truth. When you see a grain of sand, you see all possible worlds with all their vast rivers and mountains. When you see a drop of water, you see the nature of all the waters of the universe. To understand the truth of our being is to understand the truth of all life. We could make some very long lists of what meditation is all about. We could say that meditation is about mindfulness, that it's about attentiveness, that it's about insight, that it's about concentration, that it's about ethics. And all of these descriptions are true. But it is important for us not to be distracted, to remind ourselves that it is always the right time, always the right time to put aside our ideas of progress and regression, to put aside our ideas with attainment and non-attainment, to put aside our ideas of good and bad meditations, of high and low experiences, so many of these ideas that, that tend to become so fascinating, they actually have very little to do with meditation. And they have very little to do with compassion. So many of these ideas about good and bad, about progress and failure, about getting somewhere or going nowhere, they mostly have to do with self-image. They mostly have to do with what we want from meditation or from our agendas about meditation. And I think it's very true that when we get caught up in these ideas or lost in these, these ideas, it's difficult to listen well. It's difficult to listen simply because we are so entangled with the notion, our notion, of the world of performance and appearance, about perfection and imperfection. Now, this is a very simple journey, a very simple invitation to listen well to the sounds of the universe in each moment. And it is a very simple statement about meditation. We can actually say that the whole of this practice is in the service of listening. We can actually say that this practice is about nurturing and fostering an acute and alert, a wholehearted listening, that this is what meditation is. This is also a relationship of compassion, a way of being present without demand.
a way of being present without conditions. Then we understand why meditation gets so difficult for us. Why at times we find meditation so so challenging and so hard because it is not easy for us to listen well or to be present without demands and without conditions. And a great sage once said, this path is not difficult for those who have no preferences. <laughs> Think how easy it would be. Think how easy our meditation would be if we had no preferences. You know, if we were so happy to sit with an aching knee, as equally happy as we were to sit with a calm mind, <laughs> this path would be so simple. We discover very quickly that we do have preferences. We discover, oh yes, it's so nice to listen to the birds in the morning. Have you noticed, you know, you sit in the morning and the birds are singing. Oh, it's delightful. How do we feel about listening to our neighbor squirming? Are we happy? And we say, fine, squirm, squirm, be restless, sniffle, sneeze, sigh, belch, whatever you want to do. Be happy, I'm here for you listening. Often not. We are very happy to listen well, you know, when there's some great insight unfolding. You know, it's a really charged moment for us. We're really seeing something clearly. Are we there? You know, we're listening so well, wholeheartedly. You know, no, wild horses couldn't drag us away. But the chattering mind, no. No, no, no. This, this is disturbing me. This is disturbing my meditation. You know, this is disturbing my, my, my spaciousness, my equanimity, my calmness. You know, it needs to stop. We are willing to attend so well in those moments when we are calm, our bodies are comfortable, you know, and there's this lovely sense of serenity developing. But we have other moments, too. When we sit and the mind is wild, you know, and there's this chaos and there's upheaval and these grand dramas. And then we look at our watch. You know, it should be over soon, you know. I hope it's going to be over soon. I hope they haven't fallen asleep up there. You know, it's, it's a better place to be. You know, then there's a better place to listen. You know, I'm going to be meditating much better, you know, outside or in another moment. You notice this curious idea we often have that there's, that there's a preferable moment to awaken in? There's a better place and a better time and a better situation to be awake in? And often, actually, when we think in those terms, we're usually thinking in terms of the pleasant. You know, this is one of our preferences, that we would, you know, if it's pleasant, if there is ease, that that's a great moment to be enlightened. You know, but who wants to be awake? You know, we, th we might even think, well, it's foolishness, you know. Why, why should I be awake to all this stuff? The world of preferences does some strange things to us. It creates a lot of separation. It creates a lot of struggle. 
There's a story of a, a nun in a temple whose, whose entire practice was dedicated to developing loving kindness and compassion. And, you know, she had this wonderful, you know, wonderful altar with a statue of Kuan Yin on it. And, you know, every meditation she'd light some incense and do some prostrations and chant some metta. And the whole, her whole practice was about developing this, you know, before her, her deity. And then one day she got a roommate who really annoyed her, really irritated her totally. And she decided, well, you know, I dedicate my practice, the merit of my practice, to all living beings except my roommate. <laughs> you know. So she made a funnel for her incense, so even her roommate couldn't share these nice smells, you know. So her incense would waft only towards her deity's face. And of course, inevitably you know the punchline here, what happened is, of course, the Kuan Yin's face turned black with the smoke of the incense. Every condition we bring in to our practice, every condition we bring in, every demand we make, is in many ways just a little renunciation of meditation, a little renunciation of compassion. You know, sometimes people speak about breakthroughs in meditation, and there are such things as breakthroughs in meditation. But the most primary breakthrough of all in meditation is breaking through our resistance to being with what is. Breaking through our resistance to being with what is. Breaking through that resistance every single moment of our day here. The pleasant, the unpleasant, the easy, the challenging. This is all the fertile compost in which insight grows clinging to our resistances to being with what is, we are just going to get states of mind, sometimes nice ones, and sometimes not so nice ones. Breaking through our resistance to being with what is, learning to befriend this moment unconditionally. In my understanding, this is the beginning of meditation, and it is the beginning of compassion. This is our challenge here, to do small things with great love. This is what compassion is all about, bringing a loving and wholehearted presence to this moment, having a willingness to welcome with an open heart everything that arises, to learn to refrain ourselves a little bit from our judgments and from evaluating what is worthy of our attention and what is not worthy of our attention. We need to see that compassion and wisdom are not separate. They are so interwoven. To be compassionate and to see wisely, we are actually asked to be empty. This doesn't mean dead. It doesn't mean brain dead. It doesn't mean you know, surrendering, discriminating wisdom. It does mean learning how to surrender our agendas, our demands, and our conditions. Every time we refrain just a little bit from our conditions, our judgments are from acting upon them. 
Every time we refrain just a little bit from our aversions or acting upon our aversions, from our clinging and acting upon our clinging, in that renunciation, in that restraint, we actually begin to travel a much deeper path. That renunciation is about renouncing the world just of appearances and performance. It is about having the willingness to see into the heart of each moment. I will give you an example. You may have found, everybody has on every retreat, no matter, you know, it's a wonderful community of people here, a wonderful group, caring, committed people, and I am sure you will find someone who really annoys you terribly. It might be something very simple, you know, they don't do anything terrible to you, you know, they're not taking your food or, you know, sleeping in your bed or doing any of that stuff, but they'll be doing something that really bugs you. And it is so easy, notice how the mind moves with aversion, with that judgment, you know, this person's, you know, the most unmindful person I've ever seen, you know, really just an unmindful person how often an image is created, we believe it to be true. We often believe that it is the truth. If we can pause for a moment in those arisings of aversion, pause for a moment within our judgments, perhaps we have the opportunity to see a little bit more deeply. Perhaps we don't renounce our interconnectedness. Perhaps in that moment of restraint, we don't pursue separation. To receive the world, to listen to the world, to listen to ourselves in a spirit of loving emptiness is the most profound gift of loving kindness and compassion that we can offer to ourselves, that we can offer to another person. In those moments of emptiness, we actually travel the path of the bodhisattva a path where we have a deep, heartfelt commitment to the end of suffering, to awakening to that which is most true. To listen wholeheartedly is our greatest challenge. Sometimes it just seems easier to travel the pathways of distance, of avoidance, of alienation. We live in a world of immense suffering and sorrow. The gap between those who have and those who don't have widens. Hunger and fear and terror are the shadows that darken countless lives in our world. Greed and heedlessness and the addiction to pleasure, they are the diseases of fear the diseases which escalate the spiral of suffering and which scar our world. There is no life that is untouched by pain, but for too many lives in our world, it is a life of ceaseless pain. How do we respond? How do we receive this pain in our hearts? How do we listen? Sometimes it's really difficult to listen well. Sometimes in, the, in encountering pain, we find ourselves becoming fearful or angry. We encounter pain every day in our lives. 
We see it in the faces of the homeless people on our streets, in the faces of the, the angry people. We see the faces of pain in the media. Sometimes we believe or feel that we have to distance ourselves, that this is the only way to, to protect ourselves. And there is an investment in our culture in numbness, in learning how to distance. Sometimes we fear that if we don't distance ourselves, we will be incapable of response, or we will be overwhelmed, or we will be damaged in some way. Sometimes encountering pain, we become so angry, and we shout at the world, and we want to find out whose fault it is, and who we can blame. And sometimes anger can be a creative energy. Sometimes anger stirs us to to respond and to reach out. And yet, in anger, we are married in such an essential way to all of those who perpetuate pain in our world. Anger and fear are sometimes our responses to pain in ourselves. We say, I shouldn't be like or why am I like this? Whose fault is it? Sometimes in pain in ourselves, we also learn how to be, pursue numbness and avoidance. But these don't help us to listen. And you may have noticed that these responses don't heal. In learning how to listen well, we do discover that the very organic embodiment of listening well is a response of love. And that love and compassion are very primary expressions of insight. In listening well, we really deeply understand that any person we see before us is ourselves in a different form. Is there anyone here who has never experienced grief? who has never experienced loneliness, who has never experienced sorrow, who's never experienced fear? I doubt it. To be human is to know this quality of pain. We mustn't be deceived by appearances. The person we see before us is ourselves in a different form. The love and compassion that arises is not necessarily dramatic. Love and compassion doesn't have to take the form of big gestures or actions. When I was in Calcutta, I went to visit the home of the dying that is run by the sisters of Mother Teresa. And of course, the, the work of these nuns is simply to, often to travel the streets of Calcutta in the dawn and to pick up from the gutters the people who are dying and to take them to this home. And many of the people who are brought there, when I was volunteering there, you know, people who are, you know, very covered, you know, they're filled with diseases and sores and, you know, emaciated and starving. And, and, they're, and the young, one of the young nuns was once asked, well, how can you do this work? You know, it must be so demoralizing. It must be so depressing. And she said, you know, whenever I touch one of these people, I'm actually looking into the face of God. 
that kind of emptiness, a kind of emptiness, empty of blame, empty of conditions, empty of demands. It is what allows us to connect with a loving and compassionate heart with our world. Now, the nuns who work there, they know that the dying is never going to stop, you know. Even if someone recovers, they know that they're going to come back to die another day. And yet, how to be fresh? How to be fresh in our responses? Knowing, we need to know, in our meditation, in our practice here, the prescriptions and formulas and right answers are not what we need. We are left, in our practice and in our life, with the simple capacity to honor life, to live with dignity, to honor the essence in ourselves and in each person in a wholehearted way. This is so much what we practice here. It is not only compassion that asks us to welcome and greet each moment without conditions or demands. It is the same in our meditation. You know, it is so easy to say, well, I'll welcome this and I won't welcome that. I will be with this, but not with that. How to be truly empty, to even ask for nothing of our meditation, to ask for no results, you know, to be able to sit and to be present in su- with such a wholeheartedness and a fullness of being, that that is enough. That is enough. Within that, we find an extraordinary richness of being. We find ourselves most impoverished, quite frankly, when we start trying to make deals with our meditation. You know, oh yes, you know, uh, you know, if I pay attention now, I'll... I'll take a break later, you know, and I'll be with this for a little while, but that's enough, you know, and now it's time to move on to something else. That's when we get most frustrated. To have no conditions, to have no demands, to be able to sit in that spirit of loving emptiness, of welcoming whatever is. Well, we are here. We are really alive. We are really awake. We are really present with all things. And there is no good and no bad and no success and no failure and no improvement and no regression. There is just the suchness of the moment. Just the suchness of the moment. And this is where we learn to listen. Whenever we have demands or conditions within compassion, within our meditation, we think in terms of I need, I want, I am looking for, I want to get rid of. It's not a bargain. You know, there are no bargains to be made here. It is interesting to explore the whole movement from choice to choicelessness in meditation and in our lives. You know, many times in our lives we find ourselves making choices on the basis of the pleasant and the unpleasant, on the basis of liking and disliking. I'll do this because it feels good or it looks to be worthy, you know, or or it looks like I'll be successful and I won't do this. Well, we come to meditation and we we are asked to make other kinds of choices here. We really are asked to make other kinds of choices here on the basis of wisdom, 
We are asked to make choices on the basis of seeing what contributes to suffering and what contributes to well-being. This is what we're doing in our practice all the time here. You know, what contributes to suffering and what contributes to well-being? We already know this. This is not news to us. You know, and we are asked to live out the wisdom that we have. We know that clinging, we know that dwelling, we know that grasping, we know that obsessing, we know that identification, we know that judgment, this all leads to suffering. Is this news to anybody? No, I don't think so. We know this. We know that looking for certainty, we know that, that rejection and denial and suppression leads to suffering. All right, well, what leads to well-being in your life? What leads to peace? What leads to well-being here? We also know this. You, know, you could come and give this talk. You know, we, we know that letting go. We know that opening our hearts. We know that forgiveness. We know that compassion. We know that sensitivity. We know that connectedness, we know that equanimity, all of this leads to well-being. I've never met anybody, you know, that sensitivity leads to suffering and that letting go leads to sorrow. This is not, you know, this is not part of the universal principle, so to speak. We know it. So we learn to make choices on the basis of wisdom, on the basis of what we understand to be true. Now, here, we are offered those choices all the time to follow the path of wisdom and compassion or to follow the path of suffering. You know, think of so how many times today you face those choices. You know, you've probably had one or two thoughts today at least. You know, you've had, you know, in that moment of thinking, well, you know, there was the possibility of some good, juicy obsessing and dwelling and fantasizing and preoccupation. And maybe there was also the choice of just letting that thought pass and letting it be and letting go. I won't ask you which path you followed. <laughs> you know, you've had other choices here today. You know, maybe somebody really did irritate you. Well, that moment is an invitation. We have the choice, you know, of really getting into some big, strong, concrete image about that person. They're like this and they're like that. We also have the choice of forgiveness, of spaciousness, of allowing. How many choices are we offered in a single day? And this path is an invitation to reach within ourselves, to reach to the wisdom that is there, to learn the lessons of that wisdom, and to learn the compassion and the happiness and the love and the peace that is born of that wisdom. There also comes a point in this practice, actually, where we don't make choices anymore, where it is so clear to us the relationship between suffering and its cause, we don't follow those paths anymore, where we are so deeply connected inwardly with understanding what brings well-being, with how to live with integrity and sensitivity, that we embody that in our lives. It's not a question of choices anymore, but much more that our wisdom guides us. When it is interesting to see the parallels between what we do here and even what the nuns were doing in that place, home for the dying in Calcutta, how they too 
spend time in silence, alone, in prayer, how they invite that quality of communion, that stillness inwardly. Because so much inviting that stillness inwardly as we invite it here, within that inner calmness of being, that openness of heart, there is revealed to us what is true. We become so much closer to the suchness of the moment. And we learn how to honor and to serve what is true through our way of being present in each moment. This invitation to stillness, to inner calmness, it's not about the absence of movement or the absence of thoughts or the absence of feelings. It is really an invitation to understand the silence of non-dwelling, the silence of non-resistance. There is a great paradox in this practice that we learn to weave together. We are learning to weave together the capacity to be so responsible in our lives and so responsive, and the capacity to let go. And the Buddhist path actually emphasizes both of these equally, assuming the responsibility to live as with integrity in a noble way in our lives, in a caring and compassionate way, and also how to let go. Certainly in Buddhist teaching, it is held so closely that to honor and to serve the well-being of all life, to care for the well-being of all living things, to care for the well-being of our planet. You know, mindfulness practice is basically saying that nothing is irrelevant, that everything matters, everything is worthy of our wholehearted attention. Every word we speak, every step we take, every gesture we make, that all of this becomes sacred, becomes an embodiment of the path through the sensitivity that we bring. Mindfulness teaching is about really understanding that everything we engage in in our lives and in our minds makes a ripple upon the world. And all of us hold within ourselves the possibility to be a vehicle that communicates and embodies wisdom and compassion and care. We equally hold the possibility of being a vehicle that communicates division and separation. And really the whole of our practice, the whole of our meditation, is in the service of compassion, the service of wakefulness. We are asked to care for our world. We are also asked to learn how to let go. And these are not incompatible. We are not asked to let go or to sacrifice discriminating wisdom. We are asked to let go of delusion and anger. We are not asked to let go of discernment and clear seeing. We are asked to let go of judgment, of holding, of harboring ill will, so that our practice, our path, our life can be a vehicle that embodies compassion. The primary renunciation we are asked to undertake is the renunciation of separation, of the belief in separation to hold onto nothing and to cling nowhere, to see the emptiness 
and the transparency of division. Now sometimes people feel, well if I really understand emptiness, if I really understand transparency, what would inspire me to to heal, to give, to care? Sometimes people ask, well, if I really understand emptiness, doesn't it mean that everything's irrelevant? You know, why should I do anything if everything's just going to pass away and, you know, fade into nothingness? Well, in one way to understand emptiness is certainly to see the transparency of self. It doesn't mean that every, anything at all is irrelevant. It means that everything that we see and touch and hear and embody, that all of this is its own unique expression of truth, to be honored, to be cared for, to be connected with. This path begins with compassion. I really encourage you to remember that in your meditation. In those moments when you struggle, in those moments when you feel judgmental, in those moments of doubt, in those moments when you feel harsh towards yourself, what choices do you have in those moments? And of course, all of us stumble in our lives. There are moments when we are harsh, there are moments when we are judgmental. These are the moments that invite us to understand compassion. These are the moments that invite our greatest care. These are the, where else would we learn about compassion? I encourage you to remember it in your practice, to walk with care, to sit with care, that we are not engaged in some grand search of perfection here. We are engaged in a journey of understanding, of how to live every moment with total wholeheartedness, with a heartfelt sensitivity. If we could take a couple of moments to sit together. May our beings live with sensitivity. May our beings live with open-heartedness. May all beings live with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.